Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Eric Asimov, the chief wine critic of the New York Times, discusses his new book, How to Love Wine, being released October 16th. We welcome Eric Asimov back to the show today to talk about his new book, How to Love Wine. Hi, Eric. How are you? Happy to be here. Nice to see you. So you, you've been doing this for a few years. I remember uh, uh, we had dinner one time, and you're like, ah, I've been working on a book today, and that was <laughs> that was a few years ago. So It, it is uh, sad to... to sort of experience the, the, the long journey of, of writing a book, especially if you're just doing it in your, on your weekends and occasional evenings. Uh, for me, it was a, a long slog, but I'm, I'm glad it's coming out. What was the genesis? I mean, what got you going? Well, you know, um, for one thing, just practically speaking, um, I actually had people asking me for a book, and that's very flattering, and, and you say, okay, well, all right, I'll write a book. Uh, what should I write? And um, and that took a, a while just to really um, consider what whether I had something worth saying. And the more I thought about it, uh, I I started I I th- I started thinking of of the people who come up to me all the time when they learn I write about wine. And they just uh, kind of express their, they kind of apologize to me for not knowing very much about wine. And then they say, oh, but I know I should, as if there's some sort of obligation to, to know anything about wine. And I, I've been hearing this from people for so long, I just thought, well, what, you know, what is it about wine that, that makes people feel so insecure and, and anxious and apologetic and inadequate? And that was really the starting point of the book. And that's a, a, uh, a question that I, I try to answer by, by looking at American wine culture and how, how we think about wine, how we talk about it, write about it. And, and to see if there's something there that uh, is, is conveying the message that, um, you know, wine is, is maybe, maybe it's a little difficult for you. Maybe, maybe you don't have what it takes. And um, the subliminal idea of behind a lot of what's said. And yeah. Yeah. You know. 
And, um, you know, as, as many efforts uh, as are made to, to demystify wine or to, you know, take the snobbery out of it, make it easier, I, I think a lot of these efforts end up uh, reinforcing the, uh, that subliminal message. I see. And it seemed like one of the ways that you went about it was not to just do a treatise, but to also integrate uh, a memoir, because it is a lot about your story and, and how you got involved with wine and restaurants. Yeah. Uh, and um, I mean, I, the subtitle of the book is a, a memoir and manifesto, and that, that kind of uh, covers the two angles at, at which I come uh, but from which I come at this question, my own experiences falling in love with wine and uh, uh, sort of a, a, a rant against what I find in, in our American wine culture that that tends to make people feel uncomfortable. And um, the reason why I, I talk about my own experience is because um, it's both ordinary and extraordinary it's ordinary in the sense that, um, you know, I, I didn't I didn't go to uh, classes. I wasn't I didn't have access to to um, fancy or or uh, extravagant wines. Um, I, I don't feel as if I I'm not the type of person that's going to insure my nose for millions of dollars with Lloyd's of London. You know, for me, I came to wine just by by falling in love with it and not falling in love with the, with the great wines of the world, but with the ordinary daily drinks of the world. And um, I, I don't mean to, it's not a, a, an expression of pride that I, that I tell this story, but I think that, that my experience, in, in a sense, parallels uh, generations, if not uh, centuries of, of wine drinking cultures, people who just uh, ended up having it on the table to a certain extent and developed an, an ease with wine, uh, which is very different um, from uh, you know, developing an, an encyclopedic knowledge. Uh, it used to be really striking to me that you would you would find uh, uh, French people or Italians or Spanish who, who drank wine all the time, but, but actually, by our standards, knew very little about it. Um, that's is changing now as, as people become more uh, uh, Americanized in their approach to wine all over the world. But um, what's really in, in, the, in, in the old days, which uh, you know, I'm dating myself 20, 30 years ago, uh, you learned about wine in, in, in wine drinking countries just by having it on the table, the way you, you learned about bread or, or pasta or whatever uh, was customary to, to consume. One of the things that you said in the book um, that really I thought cast a, a different tenor on it than a lot of what you read was a critique on certainty. And if I can just quote it, you said, I would be foolish to deny the power of certainty. History reminds us all, over and over, in politics and religion, of the power of certainty. The destructive power, I might add. What is it that you think uh, certainty brings or has brought to the wine conversation when someone is perhaps overly confident or expressing a lack of interest in someone else's viewpoint in terms of wine, what does that do? 
Well, the, the fact about wine and, and the difficult fact is that good wine is, is always changing. It, it, it's different in the morning. It's different in the afternoon. It's different at night. It's different next year and the following year, even uh, month to month. It differs. It changes depending on what you're eating with it who you're with, where you're at, what the temperature is. There, there's any number of, of variables. Um, and if you're going to be really honest about wine, you, you, have to, you have to acknowledge that you're offering an opinion, maybe a, a, an informed opinion about what it's going to taste like, how what other people are going to experience with the wine. But you can't really be sure, and um, there's a, a there's nuance to wine. There's um, complexity. There's ambiguity to it that requires more than you know what's become the the common parlance for wine: the 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 tasting note and the score. Um, so. If you're going to to talk about wine, you have to sort of um, seed an absolute authority about it, a certainty. Uh, You can't just say, this wine is going to be great in one year, or this wine tastes like berries and cherries and leather, or this wine goes with uh, a certain dish. You have to, if you're being honest about wine, you have to shade it with a, a, a little bit of conjecture. And the problem is that, that anything less than certainty doesn't really sell. And the analogy that I was trying to make there is, uh, you know, in, in, in politics or, or religion, we don't, the candidates with power are not the one who are are explaining to you how complicated the world is. They're the ones who explain it in the simplest possible terms. And that, that ability to simplify things is powerful and, uh, and, and it will, it will win a candidate popularity. It will win a, a, a followers to a, a religion, but it doesn't, really explain the world or or the afterlife or wine so ha- have you pitched the book as an attempt to get out of the wine geek ghetto and reach out of that to normal people on their own terms is that what the wine uh world is lacking uh, an olive branch to people who are feel that it is not just too stodgy, but also a little too uh, willing to damn others uh, for their opinions? Well, no. I, um, you know, first of all, I, I, I would say that maybe I have a foot in the wine geek ghetto, but I'm not entirely there. Just the book, though, <laughs> not you. Um, Who is the, the audience the for book, this book? For me, the, the audience is anybody with even the slightest interest of uh, in wine and I would um, pitch that why to to include people who who are interested in wine but uncertain about it don't know what to make of it curious and I, I would go all the way to people who are are confirmed 
wine geeks, but might want to re-examine the way they think about wine or, 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 um, see those core beliefs questioned a little bit. Um, you know, you could read this book and say, oh, he's full of shit and, 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 and it will just reaffirm your belief. Or it might ask you, it, it might cause you to start questioning things that you, that you just assume right now. Um, and so the, the idea isn't to denigrate uh, uh, people who, who know an awful lot about wine. It's simply to say that, that it takes a lot of work to, to learn about wine and to understand wine. And it's, you know, it's good, honest work. It's, it's, it's pleasurable work, but it's not something, it's like any sort of, of skill, um, and I, you know, I, I resort often to sporting analogies. You know, if you want to learn how to play golf, you can't just read a book. If you want to learn how to ski, you can't just watch a, a, a video. You've got to get out there and do it and, some, and sometimes do it for years. And so the, there's a certain um, dishonesty in, in marketing a book as, uh, you know, tells you everything you need to know about wine to to always choose the right bottle or, or something like that some of the, the the myriad ways that that people market their their books um, and and just going back to the the issue of certainty for a moment um, you know we people who are considered wine authorities, wine writers, critics, whatever you want to call them, you know, we, we, we market ourselves very much on, on being um, authoritative and uh, in being right all the time. And to me, this is a, it's something destructive in, in, in the world of wine, because again, you know, there's a lot of opinions going around. There's always room for, for doubt, for ambiguity and, and to, to sort of eliminate the, the idea that we can make mistakes conveys the idea that, that, uh, you ought to be perfect. You know, you ought to, your understanding of wine ought to be perfect. If you're given a wine blind, you ought to be able to identify it and tell me where it came from, who, who made it, what year it came from. And, you know, these are sort of parlor tricks that can help you hone the palate and have their place, but they're not, they're not, um, they're they're not useful ways of measuring one's knowledge or one's understanding of wine. One of the things I was struck by when I read the book was how often uh, in the talk, uh, in the writing that you did about your own life, how often wine was integrated into the everyday, on, you know, into a casual dinner party, into a part of a conversation, into an event that happened. But it seemed like a regular activity, an everyday activity, not something that you spent months thinking, well, you know, a month from now, we're going to open this special bottle and really, really get to the bottom of, of wine that way. We're not going to make it a totemic experience or a great experience. This is just something I enjoy to do with my friends. Uh, and it seemed like that that point was 
uh, returned to again and again by way of example in the book. Are we as a culture possibly in danger of losing a meaningful connection with wine as an everyday beverage as it gets more and more expensive or for any other reason? I, I think we're returning to that now. Um, strangely enough, uh, you know, I have uh, uh, contemporaries of mine, and I'm, I'm in my 50s now, and, uh, you know, we learned about wine at a time when, when you focused on Bordeaux, and, and then maybe you made a, a transition to Burgundy, and, and your, your, your vision of the wine world was very narrow, and these were considered the great wines of the world, and that's what you focused on. And uh, I, I have friends who uh, made a lot of money and bought a lot of great bottles and, and still have in, incredible stashes of, of wine. And these are the only wines they drink, great old Burgundies or great old Bordeaux. And uh, to me, that's a, a little bit sad because the, the sensation, uh, the pleasure of wine is, is so great that I, I don't only want to drink bottles on special occasions. I, you know, I've got one friend who his, his wife doesn't drink very often, so um, he feels like you know he's going to drink water or, or soft drink with dinner, uh, and he misses out on this because he – he hasn't really seen beyond the great bottle syndrome. And I think that a lot of uh, our discussion in this country um, historically has focused on uh, great Bordeaux, great Burgundy, great champagnes, um, American wines that, that aspire to be great. Uh, but, but not enough attention has been paid to just wines that you want to have on the dinner table on any given night. And, you know, there are, there are some writers who, who have made the point that life is too short to waste uh, drinking anything but great wines. And uh, the point in that is not that you have to drink, not that you have to have the peak experience of a Grand Cru Burgundy every night, but you have to drink great examples of, of whatever wine you choose, whether it's a, a Beaujolais or, or a Chinon or, uh, you know, something from uh, uh, Sardinia or wherever. And it's such a wide world of, of wonderful uh, flavors and aromas that are out there that can, that are affordable and that can be integrated into uh, everyday life. And I think it would be wonderful to pay more attention to these sorts of wines. And, and, Paradoxically, because the the great benchmark wines have gotten out of are so expensive and out of the reach of most people, we've had to turn our attention to other sorts of wines, and I think that's why uh, uh, people are are beginning to diversify and and to to think more about other sorts of of wine experiences. Are we going to have to continue to do that as those wines themselves become more expensive or harder to find? As Ganavat becomes hard to find, as Auvernois becomes hard to find, are we going to have to keep turning our neck further and further and further looking for the next idea? Well, I think, yeah, I think we, we do. We can't, we can't just uh, focus on, you know, great wines of the Jura. Um, you know, there might be uh, uh, great dry wines coming from Hungary or Slovenia or Greece. Un 
undiscovered uh, areas largely that um, that are that harbor centuries old wine cultures, uh, places where people have been making wine for forever, but. You know, for one reason or another, whether it was uh, the era of communism or, or whatever, uh, there was a certain discontinuity. I mean, that's one example with, with Hungary and, and Slovenia. Um, you know, more often the, these areas are, 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 are just emerging from centuries of a, of a kind of a local economy you know, no, nobody ever drank a wine from Santorini except uh, people who lived there or maybe in, in mainland Greece. Um, and now these wines are, are being shipped around the world. And it takes a little while to, to learn how to do that and, and make sure those wines are, are just as good uh, as when they sent them off from the vineyard. Um, but it's an opportunity to 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 taste an enormous number of, of of wonderful wines, and and you know I have to believe not everything can be simultaneously become incredibly expensive and just for a small number of people. There's got to be something available for for most of us. Uh, one of the things that can happen when a wine comes from a faraway place that's. Uh makes it to, say, New York or a different American market, is that the wine may possibly not be understood right away on its own terms. And there may be some feedback from the market uh, where the wine is not selling uh, that causes the wine or the winemaker to change uh, their path from what maybe was historically uh, in place. And you talk a lot in the book about, uh, the, frankly, the stubbornness of certain producers in refusing refusing to change, has the idea of a market that's quite certain of its tastes or quite certain of its judgments made it harder in the past for those who are trying to surmount those obstacles to be stubborn in the face of that certainty? If we have a bit more open mind, is it possible that we'll see a more genuine expression of what might be out there? Well, yeah, that's that's one thing, and and of course, uh, economics is a, is another. I mean, it's very, it's easier to be stubborn if you don't have, um, you know, incredible bills to pay. And uh, I think you know a lot of um, what I what I think of as the wine culture wars of of the '90s and and the first decade of of this century. Um, took place because there was a lot of of trying to tailor wines to appeal to critics, certain critics, so that they would get high scores and, and sell. And, you know, often that comes, sometimes it comes from wanting to satisfy the ego and get critical approval. Other times it's it's because you're desperate to, to pay back loans. A lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of Italian producers in, in, in southern Italy um, were were the beneficiaries of, of EU loans in the '90s, and and uh, you know they were marketing their their wines all over the world, and they needed scores. So I mean, it's understandable in a way. And I I often make the analogy to restaurants because people understand food in restaurants a little bit easier than they understand wine. And you can, 
you know, the, my favorite restaurants are always the, the idiosyncratic ones where a chef has a vision and, and adheres to that no matter how many uh, investors or marketers want the chef to, to do something different. And, um, you know, when there, there are, you know, incredibly high percentage of restaurants are going to serve dishes that are popular, whether it's, you know, pasta or salmon or chicken, steak, you see it again and, and again. And then there's always one guy who's like, I'm not putting steak on my menu. I don't care. And, you know, those are the restaurants that I gravitate to. Because I want to know what he's thinking and, and what he's doing. And it's the same way with, with uh, winemakers. You know, I, I'm not going to – the the market is rewarding new oak barrels. Well, I'm not doing it. My father didn't do it that way. Most important, I don't like it. So I'm going to make what I like. And that's what I really respect. When, when people are making something that they like and they don't really care what anybody else thinks. It's not always tenable, but it's wonderful. You make the point in, in the book about the 100-point scale uh, and other – other people have mentioned this too, being really similar to the kind of scale that as Americans we come up and see in our own school system as children. And sometimes I wonder if uh, we might have a visceral sensation of being able to cheat on the exam when all we need to do is copy off someone's concluded work to get the 95 points. And I wonder if what you're proposing, which is that people work it through on their own, uh, case after mixed case after mixed case in their own voyage of discovery, might seem quite a bit scarier than just copying off the, um, you know, more experienced person next to you. Oh yeah, that's that's definitely scary, and uh, I don't recommend it for everybody. Only for people who are who are truly interested in learning about wine. And, um, you know, they, I, I am a little bit ambivalent about scores because I understand how um, easy and quick uh, they communicate something to people, especially people who don't really uh, have the time or the inclination to, to study wine. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going home. I want to pick up something for dinner. Uh, should I get the 90 point or the 85 point? Well, I don't really have to think about that. I can just do it. And uh, uh, that's fine if you don't care. But if you really are curious about wine and you want to, to understand it and to become sort of uh, 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 self, self, self-motivating and, and um, uh analytical and, and uh, cast away the, the crutch of, of critics, you really have to drink through a lot of wine. And, and in my book, I, I propose a method for uh, not only deciding if you're interested in wine, but then starting the, the long process of, of learning about it. And it's sort of a, uh, a, a preliminary to, to buying books and, and investing in classes and, and doing all that sort of thing, because you really you have to develop the emotional attachment first. And is, is it scary? Well, it's, it's no more scary than saying, I want to learn how to ski. You know, it's, it's a question of, of desire, inclination, and, and curiosity. If you don't want to, then you, then you don't do it. 
a couple times in the book, though, you say, you know, don't drink wine because it's going gonna, it's gonna to make you a better person. It's not going to make you a better person. Uh, and I, I wonder about that. Is that true? If we can develop an emotional connection with anything, doesn't that make it make us a better person? Well, it's not, it's not that wine doesn't make you a better person. What I'm trying to say is that it doesn't um, signify something uh, about yourself. And um, I, I know that this is a losing battle because, you know, everything is a signifier. The, the, the shoes we wear, the clothes we wear, the books we carry, um, you know, there's, it's, it's human nature to, to want to attach meaning to beyond uh, the, the simple utilitarian purpose, you know. Oh, that, that shirt you're wearing, that means that you went to this school or you have these other interests and you hang out with these people. And that car, that watch, yeah, they're all status symbols. And, and wine is like that too. But if you really want to, to love wine, you have to strip that stuff away so you can start making decisions based purely on, on how you and the wine interact, how, how it affects you, uh, how it makes you feel. And then you start to develop your own opinions and you can, you can uh, uh, develop your own sense of taste. And I think you're probably right. That does make you a better person when you've learned something and you feel something and, and, uh, uh, and we feel that way about wine. But when you're just um, selecting wine because you're still stuck in what it communicates about you in other ways, um, when you use it as a status symbol, then I think you're, you're just missing the pleasure in wine. So let's talk about that a little bit because I think that's a subject that's come up increasingly for you, not only in this book, but there was an article recently about Sensair where you said, I, Eric Asimov, am and dead set against the associations <laughs> game. I think that was like the, you know, the third paragraph or second, second paragraph. What is it that really bothers you about um, what I would say was the predictive power of saying, this is typically the type of person that enjoys that wine and the fact that, or fact, my my supposition that often it, it plays out that way, so it can be predictive. What is it that you don't like about, um, aside from the status symbol method of it, but the thought that a certain type of person is drawn to a certain type of wine? Um, I don't think that uh, bothers me so much as the idea, and, and Levy, I think we've had this discussion about Sancerre in particular before, uh, because Sancerre happens to be a, a, a lovely wine, and it's also a popular wine, and sometimes it's a, it's a wine that's chosen out of uh, uh, thoughtlessness, the way people used to ask for a, a glass of Chardonnay when they wanted a white wine or Cabernet when they wanted a red wine. It becomes a, a code, a second hand. And, and of course, you know, you, you, you would not be human if you didn't assign meaning and, 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 and uncover associations between uh, one thing and another. 
but uh, but I I don't want the wine to become the prisoner of of the association. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, That's the important part that it not be. Is yes. that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. And so I I think it's important for P for people to be able to uh, to to truly enjoy a, a Sancerre without worrying about what it says about them. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. You know, am I going to, if I order this, if I really want this bottle of Sancerre, does that mean the, the sommelier will think that I'm just a, 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 an unthinking uh, uh, kind of, you know, I, I want a crowd pleaser. I'm just one of the herd. Maybe. But uh, it shouldn't. Uh, you shouldn't have your your pleasure or your thinking process uh, interrupted by that. And um, you know, there, the, as as I said, it's it's a losing battle because we can't help but uh, assign meaning. But I'd like to to just I'd like to be able to think beyond that and just to to sort of pursue the sorts of wines that that. That we like, re- regardless of what we fear uh, uh, uh-huh. about what they'll tell somebody about us. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I think it's a fair point. You know, that's fine. I bring it up sometimes, though. I wonder if it's like a one-way mirror. Like I often, you often, we seek out cultural contexts and the wines that came out of them, where the, all those things are quite linked. Like, oh, this this is a person from Naples. He probably drinks Fiano for lunch. Um, but then when it, we get to here in New York, is it does it seem undemocratic to us to do the same thing? To say, well, this is a person from the Upper West or Upper East Side. She typically drinks Sancerre at lunch. Does that seem <laughs> does well, one it's, seem it's, perfectly reasonable and the other seem undemocratic? What is the difference? Oh, it seems a little bit pointless um, uh-huh. in, in the sense that you know it. it in the one, in, on the one hand, if you're talking about somebody from Com- Campania drinking Fiano, that's a, a product of many years of cultural association uh-huh. um, and a, a culture that sort of uh, organically evolved from geography. On the Upper West Side, you know, you've got people coming from from everywhere, and you you can make uh, generalizations about that neighborhood. All that you know, they have no good restaurants. They all uh, they have a bunch of kids. They have strollers like tanks. They are uh, they're rude or whatever you want to do, but it's it's a stereotype. It's a pernicious stereotype rather than a a uh, a useful shorthand, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And, um, and just one more thing about yeah. Sancerre. Sure, you know. In 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 my experience, uh, uh, there's a lot of great Sancerres made by dedicated vignerons who have been making wines for for centuries, whose families have been making wines for centuries. And I hate to see a wine that that I believe truly is a a product, uh, an expression of culture, sort of tossed into to another sort of wine like. That where maybe you can you can draw a stereotype. Oh, uh, you know he only. I I think I can say if he only drinks white Zinfandel, I know a little bit something about that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there you're talking about a factory mass produced wine that that really has no basis in in culture. But I I guess I would say that sometimes you see the sympathies uh, decline as the price increases. <laughs> so as we've seen. 
Sancerre basically double in price in 15 years. Should we still have the same sympathies we had for it at an earlier time? Obviously, there's dedicated uh, growers. I love Cotat, but the wine cost me over $100 if I order one from a current vintage Vuitton. Same thing, Pinar, if you can find it. Is it reasonable to expect the same um, connection to a $100 wine at a restaurant or even $150 or $200 wine in case of something like Dagano uh, that I would to a $50 Caracante or Fiano or? Well, I think, you know, there's a, then there's an element of personality. I mean, I might feel wistful about it rather than resentful <laughs> or angry. But, uh, you know, it's like, how do you feel about an expensive Burgundy? Um, you know, I, again, I... Well, but might... I don't feel any pity for Rumier. <laughs> but it almost feels like you kind of feel... Well, I, I don't feel pity for... Pity for Vuitton. Or... I, I feel pity... I feel pity for producers if they're kind of lumped in with a, with a mass-produced ethos that doesn't uh, sufficiently acknowledge... Um, what their wine expresses uh, over time. So one of the things that also comes up in the book is that we're moving away from a centralized wine approval system. Have we seen that happen? And is it important that the discourse um, not just have many more voices, but all those voices uh, be considered and listened to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it goes back to to what I was saying about certainty. Uh, you know, if you go back uh, uh, ten or fifteen years, and you have two uh, primary voices in this country, Robert Parker and uh, and Wine Spectator, who, yes, they're 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 very different in their particulars, but they're sort of come from the same place. Uh, so you you don't have uh, debate. You have you have sort of a, uh, you know, a party line. Um, and it, it doesn't allow for, for disagreement or, or, uh, or uncertainty. And now with the, with the internet, uh, with uh, blogging and, and so many different uh, decentralized positions from, from which uh, to, to offer a point of view, there's uh there's far more opportunity for argument and doubt and, and ambivalence and ambiguity. And I, I think that's incredibly healthy for, um, for the future of wine. And it's one of the things that has uh, made people pay attention to, to so many more different wines than they used to. In terms of that, in terms of uh, a broader discourse on wine, are you concerned about how th this book may be perceived because it seems like uh, critics are often quite critical of each other, which is something you actually mentioned in the book, in the wine side. And I, I wonder, um, have you thought a lot about um, not just how we talk about wine is perceived, but how you talk about wine is perceived? Because I remember there's a, a passage in the book where you say, some of you will be unhappy with this line of thinking. Is there an automatic sense that uh, along the fault lines or what you call the balkanization of party camps in the wine world, that uh, there's going to be built-in resistance to certain ideas? Well, absolutely. I think, um, you know, obviously people like um, 
not just Parker and 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 Wine Spectator, but most most wine publications and and people who make their living in in the wine world have a vested interest in uh, uh, scores and tasting notes and that sort of thing. Uh, we have a, a uh, you know who people are, are who are involved in wine education are not going to um, uh, appreciate somebody who questions the the need for wine classes and the whole notion of of wine appreciation and 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 that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think um, people are are definitely going to uh, disagree with a lot of of what I say and and. Uh, I expect that, and I welcome that because the. That's interesting. So yeah, that's kind of underlying what you're saying that you welcome this part of the discussion. Yeah, it's not supposed to be like this is just what I say and there it goes. It's kind of harkening back to some of the major themes. You're welcoming it as part of the debate, right? Because um, you know my purpose in, in writing this book is also to to get us to question some of the assumptions that that we make, and um, I. I don't pretend that my that I offer brilliant solutions to these questions that I'm raising. Well, I, it's I, actually the opposite. I find the book written in a very modest tone. But you know, I think that uh the purpose is to is to to get discussion going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and and if people disagree with me, that's fine if they have other ideas to to offer, that's uh that's even better. Um but you know, there's just for too long we've had a a conventional wisdom in wine, and it just uh, because there are so few opportunities for people to learn themselves, we we over rely on on book learning, and you see especially in in blogging, for example, or or people who are, are just sort of offering their opinions, you see people repeating things that they've read somewhere. And I I understand that because I know I've done that myself. Yeah, me too. And eventually you get to a point where you have to start questioning yourself and you 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 say, is that is it really true? I mean is oak really a bad thing? I don't know that oak's a bad thing. I read that somewhere, but no, this, it seems to have this wonderful effect on wine, and and maybe maybe it's a good thing. Um, maybe it's maybe it's both bad and good. Uh, maybe things are more complicated than than I thought before that I read somebody say. Um, you know, is is Napa Valley a great place for Cabernet Sauvignon? Well, I've read it so many times; it must be true. But on the other hand. I haven't found so many Cabernets that I love from Napa Valley. So how do I decide? You know, these are the, these are the questions that you have to start asking yourself and that you answer only through, through experience with wine. Um, and, and they're, they're questions to keep in mind when you're, when you're reading authorities who speak with certainty. Now I'm going to ask you this question, um, and you don't have to be the sole uh, answer of it. You know, you don't. Uh, I'm not painting you as a sole authority on this subject, but you're certainly more knowledgeable about it uh, than me because you're older than me. 
Have Thanks. we? Well, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but have we seen the priorities of the wine drinking public in America shift as uh, the boomers have changed in age as they have gotten older? So, uh, if uh, the boomers are in middle age and they want to be more youthful, are we talking about more primary fruit, but with anticipated drinking windows for a hundred years? And as they get older. Has there been a shift amongst uh, the wine discourse in the country where a lot of people seem to be saying, well, I'm not interested in building a cellar because I may not be around long enough to drink all of it. I want something I can drink tonight. And we start to see more of an emphasis on natural wines, on wines uh, that are a little bit more village level, on wines I can drink every day. Is some of this not just about the wines, but about the people that are drinking them, and that happened to be such a large part of our population in America? Well, I, I, I really don't think it's a generational shift. I mean, it's not uh, aging baby boomers who are sparking an interest in, in natural wine. I mean, that comes from a much uh, younger uh, cohort, I believe. Um, well, I'd say Joe Dresner and Kevin McKenna and maybe even Jenny Lefkoer are all Well, yeah, they, they are older Older Joe, maybe, but uh, but the audience for these wines uh -huh, it, uh -huh. it tends to be younger. Um, I think it, you know what what we see is a a new generation that is has a looks at a world completely different from the one that baby boomers grew up in. The, How do you the, see the differences as? Someone that has some perspective on both. Yeah, I'm I'm a tail end boomer. Yeah, and um, you know, as I as I said, when I wanted to learn about wine, you started with Bordeaux. Yeah, and that was the 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 benchmark. Those it was widely considered the the greatest wine region in the world, and it was also uh, uh, the easiest to understand to agree because there, to a degree because there was a clear hierarchy and and. Uh, you know, there there wasn't the complexity of of Burgundy uh, on first glance, and you could sort of study up on it and and drink your way through it. Um, but nowadays, there's so much more available, and and the uh, the first wine experience tends not to be uh, old world, but but new because there's so much uh, cheaper decent palatable wine, whether it comes from Australia or South America, South Africa, California, you know, you're, you're starting in a, in a different place where you don't have the, the kind of um, uh, uh, the pedantry available to, to kind of uh, absorb. And so the, the, the trajectory that you follow uh, which was kind of narrow for, for me. You go through Bordeaux, you go through Burgundy, you start exploring other areas. Oh, Italian wines. Yeah, more of those are, are becoming available now. Um, now you're, you're sort of working your way back to those areas at the end of, of, of the route if you can afford those wines. You're really you're going through California and then you're maybe – dipping into the the old world but there's just so many more opportunities uh, available and so many such a a great diversity of wines that that younger people or that people of my generation did not have 
that I, I think people are, are just um, used to having choices. It's, you know, to, it's like growing up in a, in a segregated neighborhood where everything is the same. I mean, that was the older experience. And, and nowadays people are in a much more integrated environment where, you know, the wines of, of Sicily don't appear strange or, or, um, you know, that you don't have to, uh, people aren't sneering at the, at them unless they haven't learned about the wines of Sicily, which are, you know, just one of the most exciting things of the last 10 years. But as we go about doing that and searching out different terroirs in different regions, are we really just extrapolating on the Burgundian model, like a Burgundian uh, thinking in terms of how we approach each uh, vineyard and vineyard relationship? So have we replaced the idea of brand name Bordeaux as the pinnacle and what shapes our thinking of hierarchical wine with another hierarchy but the Burgundian model. Uh, Levy, that's such an interesting question, uh, and I think you're 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 right to a great extent. And um, you know, it's interesting to me. Uh, I, I've talked about this before. How how so many young people just sort of uh, disregard Bordeaux today because it's been so imprinted, and this is especially true of sommeliers. It's been so imprinted on them. The the uh, the beauty of Burgundy and the sort of uh, uh, the the terroir of small plots and the the dirt under the nails of vigneron and there's a there's a romance to this that that is extremely powerful and and in fact is often borne out in experience and um, I think that the reason why it tends to be so influential is because it's much closer to the to the real experiences in wine regions um, throughout the old world where where most of them were sort of locally based and small land owners or or land renters uh, vigneron that that French word that refers to the combination of of growing grapes and and making wine and um you know as you as as you travel throughout the the old wine world that tended to be the the norm you know wine was a a, a subsistence crop you had that you had grapes along with your your grains and your your cattle or your animal uh your vegetables and it's just something that you made and you know places like Bordeaux, where uh, you actually, uh, you know, catered to uh, international commerce centuries before most wine regions did, where where there were was aristocracy uh, involved. Uh, those tended to be exceptional. I mean, obviously there was aristocracy in in Burgundy as well, but uh, but for the most part, we don't think of that today. We think of the vigneron. So, Eric, with the progression of the Burgundian mindset, if it if it exists, if we're looking at things through burgundy colored glasses, and we no longer think that these first growths are the pinnacle uh, of what can be, and we're open to the idea of many other great or good or wonderful things happening from uh, someone's connection to a plot of land, wherever it might be in the world, has that model also hindered us at times from accepting certain wine styles that 
aren't made with the same production methods as Burgundy. So maybe a fortified wine uh, might come to mind, maybe like Madeira or Port or Sherry. Are those, uh, as a result, more marginalized or maybe skin contact wines that are starting from white grapes? Are those more marginalized as a result of our um, desire to see or acceptance of Burgundy being the best? I don't think so. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, the Burgundy uh, comparison is tough for, for any other region because, you know, very few areas have been so, so almost the land in very few other areas has been as microscopically examined and categorized as, as it has been in Burgundy. And, you know, you can talk about doing that in, in Barolo or in uh, Germany or, or wherever, but it's, it's very hard to do. It was a lot easier to do hundreds of years ago when, when monks only had to answer to one higher authority. Now we have uh, politics, which gets in the way of everything. But, um, you know, other wines it's not so much the burgundian mindset as it is a a sort of a, a rigid uh particularly with fortified wines the 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 rigid natural wine folks who uh you know real who understand that that most uh sherries for example don't conform to uh, a a purely natural way of production um the the difference though, is, uh, and where their critique is correct, is that, you know, we, we've kind of ceded the whole sherry market for many years to, to big industrial companies. And it's not, it's not so much that, they're, that sherry is unnatural as it is just mass market. And in fact, one of the, the great things in wine right now is the, the rediscovery of sherry, which I, I love so much we wrote and, evocatively about it and at length yeah and um and i know you love it too and to to see um the sort of 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 thinking uh going on now about sherry and the sort of emphasis and emphasis on um on on proper uh viticulture and uh and careful uh uh uh, I guess construction of the the wine, it is is it's a wonderful thing to see. And you know what what um, what's most interesting to me about sherry is the realization there that the way to uh, uh, to revive this segment is not so much to sort of sell a lot of cheap wine, a lot of cheap, indifferent wine, which is the model that that it's been built on, but that you can sell uh, really good wine to people who actually love sherry the way they love Burgundy or, or Champagne or, or Mosul Riesling or, or uh, anything else. And, and that's going to widen the appeal of, of sherry. And I think that's true you know, with with all sorts of wines, it's um, you know, it's not just the. Uh, I was talking before about having it on on the table like a, a a grocery, a staple, and it's not just that. It's the combination of that and also uh, having it a, a appeal to discerning 
people because there's no going back there. There's no, you know, there's no more world where uh, people drink wine because it's safer than water. You know, it's uh, it's now a world of people who who might drink it every day and and think of it as as just another uh, grocery on the table, but know a lot about it and and are are discerning and and thoughtful and 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 consider what it is they're drinking. You talked about monks and answering to one higher power. I have to say, reading the book, I was frequently reminded of of. Uh, and feel free to tell me I'm completely wrong-headed about this, but but Protestant tracts that said you can make a direct connection with the spiritual if you would like to. Uh, you don't need to go through the uh, atrophy of the hierarchy of the religious uh, nomenclature or the religious um, setup of priests who stand in the way of you getting to what you need, the primary connection that's important. Uh, frequently, it sounds like you're encouraging people to develop their own relationship with wine that may uh, encourage them to read, let's say, a sacred text or a text more carefully, or that may encourage them to uh, become involved with fraternities or sororities of wine uh, more actively, but which that is not at all required. Uh is that that at all uh, something that is a part of your thinking? <laughs> well, as a uh, as a Jew, it's a little bit scary for me to be yeah, uh, I mean, to liken to a Protestant. Um, but uh, I think yes, I think it's a it's a great analogy. And um, just to extend it a little bit, you know, I, I think that. Um, the the healthiest form of of wine critic is is not not a, as a priest telling you how to act or or instructing you on on what you ought to do it's more as an as an interpretive thinker an inspirer so you know i it, it it's more uh like reading uh you know it, it, uh, religious uh, thinker or religious academic who has uh, who who achieves authority simply by um, by being um, inspirational or or uh, helping you to think for yourself to sing the gospel in a yeah. way someone who encourages you gets you excited yeah rather than than being so um, uh, 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 in rather than simply telling you what you ought to do and expecting instructions to be followed. Someone that's looking for a call and response. Yeah, like you know, for that could be it. You know, I mean, we could sing a, a, a beautiful tune about wine. It's better to me and more, more pleasing than uh, listening solely to one person's aria. If that were to happen, uh, what would the wine world look like that that would result in? What, how would it be different than what we see today if, if what you're – you're asking for or encouraging were to occur, say, 25 years from now, how does the wine seem Oh, man, it different? would be like total chaos. Yeah, because <laughs> I wonder that, you know. <laughs> but, you know, something, um, I, think, I think chaos should not be underestimated. I don't, it, it's more, it would be more organized chaos where, where people are, are thinking for themselves and, uh, and doing for themselves. And maybe it's a little bit uh, uh, utopian, uh, 
in a way where where people uh, are not doubting and, and simply can pursue their own interests and, and have experimented and, and uh, decided on, on what they like, but are still open to other sorts of, of experiences. Um, I think that, you know, in, in this world, which might be chaotic, which might be ruled by, by joyful sorts of disagreements and, and arguments, there would still be a, a greater ease and confidence um, with wine than, than the sort of uh, dependency that you have now, which makes people very uneasy. One of the passages that I was most drawn to in the book was actually comes towards the end when you describe the Matthiasen family and how they have set up a shop uh, in terms of making wine in Napa in small quantities uh, against the model, but in a way you say hidden from the street, in a way that's not loud or brash or big tasting room or portico uh, in a faux uh, Renaissance style, seems uh, to be, and you make this point, hearkening back to an earlier time of, of cottage industry and uh, what I think of often is New England agriculture, although here we are, uh, in this case, in California. Um, I found that inspiring. Is that something that is viable? Is it possible for more people to return to what I think of as the American agricultural roots or not? Oh, yeah. I think it's uh, definitely possible, although it's extremely challenging, especially in, in the sort of uh, economic environment of, of California, where land in, in particular is so expensive. And, uh, you know, in this particular case, Steve Mathiason is a, a vineyard consultant. So he has a, a, that's his living. It's not so much uh, his wine production, but it's a, it is an inspiring story in which his family not only uh, grows grapes, but also fruit. And uh, they have a, a couple of animals and, um, you know, they, uh, they're, they're canning and, and, and producing, uh, 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 they grow their own meat and, and their own food as well as their, their own wine. And I don't think that that's a model of self-sufficiency that, that is viable anymore, but it's, it, it's sort of an ideal um, and I, I, just one other thing, you know, the, the Mathiasins make a very small amount of wine and it's, it's a kind of wine that's always going to appeal to sort of a fringe, uh, element. And you have to remember when you're talking about wine in general, uh, it's a very small slice of our population. And even within that small slice, the kinds of wines that, that we're talking about is a, is a much smaller percentage. And, you know, the idea is not to win over, to make everybody in the world or in our country uh, a wine lover. I, you know, it's not, it's not something that I aspire to. And I don't even really aspire to, to, talk to the people who are, are not so interested in wine or, and are just buying that, that mass market uh, uh, wine that's available in the, in the supermarket. Um, but I'm content with just a, you know, a fairly small selection of people who are interested in, 
in wine and want to think about it and are uh, would go after something like these uh, Matthiasin wines. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that is a, uh, a snobbish or undemocratic point of view. It's the same thing as... Uh, uh, You're saying you can come along with me if you'd like, but you don't have to. You don't have to. And it's, you know, it's any more than, um, you know, restaurant critics who are writing about the sorts of restaurants that very, very few people will ever go to. And we can exalt, a, a, you know, a chef in a, in a restaurant in, in Copenhagen or, you know, even here but in But it's Manhattan. not because they're, they're not going to go. It's not that they're barred from entry. It's no. not that they can't go because of their race or creed or religion. It's it's only expense. So anyone who really does want to go can find a way if they want. Well, to. there's also a you know there. It's a question of volume too. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, you you there's not enough, uh, not enough seats in in those restaurants even for the the small people who are interested. Um, and and you know, there's probably not enough uh, of of the sorts of wines that we're talking about, artisanal wines or expressions of of a particular culture. If everybody suddenly wanted that sort of wine, so I mean, it's okay if 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 not everybody is interested in it. Well, it'll certainly help keep prices a little more stable. <laughs> you know. So this is the first uh, time I've seen a piece of writing from you in the last twenty years that. Uh, that doesn't say the New York Times on it uh, on the cover. Uh, what's next for you? Was it important to step out from underneath the cover of the Times? Although it's definitely talked about in the book quite frequently. Uh, you know, this is not an official Times book. This is not an official Times publication. Uh, what might we see in the future from Eric Asimov? Well, I think. Um uh, I hope you'll see a few more books. Uh, uh-huh. uh, sadly, or maybe happily, I'm not sure. The, the next book actually will be a Times publication, um, and that's more uh, a a compilation of uh, columns with recipes from from Florence Fabricant. Oh, okay. But uh, I I do hope I'll I'll be doing some more um, uh, books on my own um, about about wine and the culture of wine and wine and food and people. And, um, yeah, you know, I've been at the Times for so long, almost 30 years, it's a little scary for me to, to think about it, that, uh, you know, it's about time that, that I stepped out from under. And, and, and honestly, even as my uh, editor, book editor will tell you, uh, uh, the Times culture is, is a very powerful one. And very hard for for me to emerge from uh, simply in terms of grammar and style. And um, if I can if I can get out from under that a little bit, it would be very satisfying for me. Well, I think you've done a great job, and I I look forward to rereading the book, which is called How to Love Wine. Well, Levy, if it inspires rereading, I I think I've done my job. Thanks. Thank you to Eric Asimov, our guest on the show today, the chief wine critic for the New York Times. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com. 
which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.